I know. We're having technical problems. I had several professors in seminary, one in particular, who usually about once a year. So everybody would stand up and he would have us all go through, saying, I may never march in the infantry and go through all the motions. And our, back then it was like in three-piece suits. So. so they're working on, uh, what, is everything down? Everything is down. Well. You know, every now and then, every now and then I wonder if, uh, that's okay. You don't have sound either. It's like, uh, it's like the, the old story that Jay Vernon McGee one time, if you don't know their sound, Jay Vernon McGee at one time told the, I um, uh, was invited to speak at chapel at Dallas Seminary. And he he was really a crusty old curmudgeon. And you hear him still on the radio, even though he has been with the Lord for probably 20 years or a little more. And he was he got his accent. Anybody know where, where he got his accent? Waxahachie, Texas, which m- might be West Texas, depending on where you draw, draw the line. But uh, no, he was from Waxahachie. Two great stories about J. Vernon McGee I like. One is that, that when he first was accepted at Dallas Seminary, he had been accepted at Union Presbyterian Seminary in Virginia, which was a liberal Presbyterian seminary. And he, I think he either went there for a year or he went up there and visited and decided that they were way too legalistic. I don't understand why liberals got, were legalistic, but they were. So he decided he wanted to evaluate the grace orientation of Dallas Theological Seminary. So he walked into the main, uh, main building, at Dallas Seminary, smoking the largest cigar he could find. And he was still accepted as a student, so he decided they were grace-oriented enough. <clears throat> in, the early, in the early 70s, he was in, this is one of my favorite stories because it's even, it's, the, the reality is worse even today. He was invited to speak at, at chapel at Dallas Seminary. And so he came, and I, I guess they didn't give him any parameters or anything, and that usually happens. People think that that you assume you know what the routine is. So he showed up in about five minutes before chapel. Uh, the chaplain at that time was Dick Sumi, former pastor of Baraka Church here in Houston. Uh, Dick Sumi informed him that uh, they would open in prayer, sing a hymn, and then he would have approximately 20 minutes for his message, which was chapel was only 30 minutes long. And so he... When McGee was just kind of stunned, he didn't say anything at the time. And when it came uh, time for him to speak and he was introduced, he got up and he said, well, man, I was just informed that I only have 20 minutes to speak. No one can say anything significant about the Bible in 20 minutes. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Only McGee could get away with that, but he made his point. So some things are, you know, when you're talking about significant, important things of eternal value, sometimes an hour isn't enough. Always think about missionaries who go over to India or places where there's little Bible teaching and people drive seven, eight hours 
to stand for four to listen to the teaching of the word and then drive home six or seven hours. And some of us have trouble driving 15 minutes for a 45-minute message once a week. So whatever the application of that is, may the Holy Spirit apply it to your soul. Well, we don't have Internet tonight, so I don't know why, but they'll, just, they'll miss out. So we're having, having some problems back there. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's bow our heads together and have a few moments of silent prayer, and then uh, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed humbled when we examine the Scriptures to study the details of your plan of salvation, all of the dimensions of what you have accomplished for us through that one act of sacrifice upon the cross where your Son died and within just the short span of three hours paid the penalty for the sin of the world, for every human being, every single sin paid for during that time. And, Father, we are thankful for our salvation, for all that comes with it, for the fact that in this church age we have a unique role, a unique responsibility, unique privileges and blessings because of our position in Christ. And, Father, as we study your word this evening, continue to study in uh, Romans about the uh, implications and consequences of our justification, we pray that you would challenge us with what we're studying, that we may come to understand it more fully and that God the Holy Spirit would use it to stimulate us to greater uh, growth and maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and we are in the first verse. Now, two weeks ago, I started on this, looking at this concept of peace that is expressed in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Paul begins with a conclusion coming out of two and a half chapters where he sets up the need and the description of exactly what justification is, that we cannot justify ourselves. There's no way that any human effort, any human work could justify oneself. The justification is either by the work of another or by our own works. It cannot be both, or it has to be one or the other. So he says in drawing a conclusion from what he has said in chapters uh, 2, 3, and 4, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now this lays a groundwork for what is going to uh, be said in the coming chapter. It's interesting as you read through the various commentators and the various uh, 
expositors of this chapter how different how different their view is. There's so much in this chapter that it creates a lot of a certain level of confusion. There are some that see it as an extension of the discussion on justification in terms of uh, of dealing with what happens at phase one. And then there's a clean break in chapter six goes into sanctification. There are others who see this as as uh, a little bit of both, uh, starting off primarily with uh, as an introduction to sanctification with a focus on the spiritual life. There are others who see this as a a pure or true hinge chapter. I think that's more correct that this is a hinge chapter. That is. It has elements related to our instant, the instant of our salvation, what we refer to as phase one, our justification, and the immediate implications of that, the benefits of our justification, and also the implications or consequences of that that open the door to further development in terms of our ongoing uh, spiritual life. So there's a connection here. He foreshadows what he will say in chapters 6 through 8, as well as going back to and sort of uh, bringing to a conclusion that which he has already uh, stated about justification. In the last couple of lessons, I looked at the word peace. We have peace with God. What does this mean? If we were left with only this particular verse, just verse 1, or verse 1 and verse 2, we might even think that this peace with God is not phase 1, but phase 2. We might think it's not just an absolute status or status that we have with God, but that it is a um, it is an ongoing uh, an ongoing relationship that must be focused on. And there's some translations who take it that way because there's actually a textual problem in this particular verse in terms of the statement of uh, what we have, that, that phrase that's translated we have. And some translations take it as um, uh, let us maintain peace with God, which would be a phase two activity, but that's because there are a vast, there are a lot of manuscripts that actually have that uh, phrase. We'll look at that in just a minute. So in the last two lessons, because it was Christmas and because we really do need to understand this concept of peace, I took a look at peace in the Old Testament and specifically in a messianic context, looking at Isaiah 9-6 and the context there with uh, Isaiah chapter 7 through 9 and those messianic prophecies and looking at the fact that the key word for peace in the Old Testament is uh, the noun shalem, which is uh, the root from which we get shalom, and which is a word used in Hebrew even today for a greeting, for saying hello, saying goodbye, uh, wishing someone well. It, it has a wide range of applications. The root meaning is to be complete or sound or fulfilled, but it also has uh, other aspects to it or other nuances to it. In the Old Testament, uh, Shalom is used over 250 times. The, the Septuagint translates it sometimes with a, the word, the Greek word for salvation. Uh, we have, and that would relate to peace with God. 
Uh, sometimes it's translated peace over 50 times, and specifically in context of war. And in other places, it's translated with the idea of complete. So in some places, it's very close to the idea we have from the Greek word we've studied, uh, 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 teleos, meaning completion or maturity, reaching a wholeness in term a relationship rather than something that's uh, that's partial. So we've seen these meanings, the primary meaning be, being in the Old Testament, especially because there's so much war and violence, that peace would relate to the absence of physical war, uh, conflict, or strife. But it, it's more than just a Cold War status. It's also the fact of, of restored harmony between former enemies. And that's an important idea that is brought over into the New Testament concept of reconciliation is that the human race is at enmity with God. We are hostile to God. There is a state of alienation with God, and through reconciliation we have peace with God, a restoration of harmony. It's not just the absence of conflict, but the positive uh, um, aspect of, of harmony uh, with God and our relationship with him is completely restored. And the Old Testament also relates this to righteousness, as in Isaiah 32, 17. And then third, I pointed out that this also refers to the word uh, shalom, also refers to the peace offering that speaks of peace between God and man. I know it was a bit confusing for some people when I looked at um, I, uh, Luke 2.14, and brought in the idea here that this announcement by the angels of uh, on earth peace, that this wasn't talking about reconciliation. That's just not the context, as I pointed out through the, our studies on that. The whole context of these first two chapters in Matthew and Luke has to do with the announcement of the Messiah coming and the Messianic promise, prophecies related to the nation Israel, was that he would establish a kingdom that was a kingdom of, of peace. Now, there is a correlation with uh, peace with God and reconciliation, but that's another idea that is not the focal, focal point here. And sometimes we're too guilty of Rorschach exegesis. Every now and then I do the same thing. We see a word peace. Oh, that reminds me of peace with God over in Romans 5. Well, you just, you know, Rorschach test is the inkblot test, and so you see something that looks familiar, and so you immediately correlate it over to something else that is familiar, and you fail to take into account the fact that that's not really what that original passage is talking about. It's looking at another aspect of the word. So the word has a number of different meanings, and it's used that way, and I remember hearing a number of different uh, good Bible teachers when I was younger making statements such as uh, the Bible never uses the word peace in terms of a, a world peace or an absence of military conflict. It always relates to either the, the individual's relationship with God or, the, or in terms of uh, the Christian life having an absence of worry or fear or anxiety. But that's really not true either. The word peace in the New Testament is used a number of different ways. Look at how the Lord uses it in two particular uh, passages in Matthew 10, and then we'll look at its, uh, a similar statement in Luke 12. 
In Matthew 10, 34 to 36, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. Well, I can just hear some liberal now, can't you, saying, Well, wait a minute, this is a conflict in the Bible. Over here, he's the Prince of Peace. Over here, he says he's not bringing peace. See, the Bible contradicts itself. Well, we have to look at context again to understand uh, understand the meaning and what Jesus is actually saying in passages like this. And that is that at this stage in his uh, ministry on the earth, he's recognizing, he's teaching the disciples that his message is going to bring conflict. It's not going to initially bring um, peace in terms of restoration of relationships. So he says, don't think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. And he's talking about the fact that truth divides. Sometimes we get in our liberalized Western civilization world the idea that any kind of division, any kind of disharmony, any lack of peace is in and of itself bad. But that's not what the Scripture says. In fact, and, and Paul recognizes this in 1 Corinthians where uh, he states that when uh, the truth comes, it will divide. That's part of the nature of truth in a fallen world. It will cause division. It will cause opposition. And so if we're not teaching the truth uh, in, in order that it, not in order that it would divide, but in a way that it will expose people's commitments to human viewpoint thinking and thus result in division, then we are compromising the truth. And this is often seen today in the way numerous uh, evangelical churches approach the idea of truth. I've recently been uh, reading a book that has given me some ammunition I didn't have before that I'll be bringing some of these things out. Yeah, Gene Brown's got a copy back in the back already uh, called The New Evangelicalism by Paul Smith. It will open your eyes. It may not open a lot of your eyes because a lot of you may don't know who all the players are that are mentioned in the book. Um, when Tommy, my friend Tommy, I found this book about six months ago. Tommy had called me up. I thought he was going to had converted back into Pentecostalism. He was uh, so excited about it. And I ordered it and didn't have time to look at it. And then at pre-trib, I was speaking with some friends, and one of them was reading it. And I said, I really need to get that book off the shelf and read it. And I started reading it. And then I called Tommy this week, and he was afraid I was converting to Pentecostalism. And that's because a lot of what is going on in this book is is a description of the history of evangelicalism from the end of World War II to the present and how we got to the state we're in today. If you go to most churches, and most of you know this, you have children, you have friends, relatives who go to megachurches, and there are really two different kinds of megachurches. There are some that are large because of the grace of God, and there is some measure of truth taught there. And those who are following certain church growth strategies that came out of the late, uh, they came out really of the late 60s and the late 70s. And the primary uh, uh, promoters of this are people like Rick Warren and his purpose-driven church. Rick Warren's pastor of Saddleback, 
uh, Community Church out in Southern California. And then you have Bill Hybels up at uh, Willow, Crook, Willow Creek uh, Community Church up in Chicago, and then two or three others. And, and those models of that super mega church that they, they, they developed really had its roots in the late 70s and early 80s. What's happened since then is a new, a new level of deterioration and apostasy in the, uh, in the evangelical, so-called evangelical community, and that's the development of what's called the emergent church. And the emergent church just about throws out any kind of doctrinal, uh, a- absolute in any way, shape, or form. And, uh, it, you know, they sit around in a bunch of couches and basically uh, play, play, let's share whatever you think God's Spirit told you yesterday. And nobody's studying the Word, and they don't believe in any absolutes, and they've gone completely postmodern in their view of truth because their foundational assumption is that if we're going to uh, be able to address a postmodern world, we have to do it from within a postmodern framework. Yeah, I don't remember the Apostle Paul saying that if you're going to reach a pagan Greco-Roman world, you have to do it within a Greco, pagan Greco-Roman framework. He didn't say that. You never use the devil's tools to convince people to leave the devil's world. It just doesn't really work. So um, anyhow, this book exposes a certain dimension of things that have happened over the last 30 or 40 years, and it traces this shift back to something that happened in the pre-World War II era, and that was the, the final collapse theologically of Princeton Theological Seminary, which occurred in 1929 when the trustees of Princeton Seminary finally approved a complete li- completely liberal uh, doctrinal statement for Princeton Seminary through the 19th century. Princeton Seminary had stood as a bulwark for biblical truth, for the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture. In fact, even to the present time, some of the greatest theologians this country has ever produced in terms of their writings about the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture were the great Princetonians, Charles Hodge, his son Augustus Alexander Hodge, who was named for the founding uh, theology professor at what had originally been the college, the Law College of New Jersey, established in the mid-1700s to train pastors. Later, it became known as Princeton uh, Theological Seminary. And you had uh, Archibald Alexander was the founding theological professor, and then Charles Hodge, he named his son Archibald Alexander, or A.A. Hodge, uh, for his mentor. And then uh, A.A. Hodge had a son named Casper. And those three generations of Hodges held the line on inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. And then one of their protégés was Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, uh, we used to laugh in seminary that I guess you couldn't be a theologian if you didn't have alliteration in your, some kind of alliteration in your name, A.A. A. Hodge, B.B. Warfield, C.C. Ryrie, D.D. Dot, you know, it just goes on. You can come up with a list of them. But anyhow, um, in 1929, when Princeton finally succumbed to the onslaughts of liberal theology, which claimed that, that the Bible was just another human book written by sinful, fallen human, human uh, writers and contained error. 
then there were five or six key men who left the faculty at Princeton and moved about 30 miles south to Philadelphia and founded a seminary called Westminster Theological Seminary uh, in about 1930. And Westminster was the covenant-slash-Presbyterian counterpart to Dallas Theological Seminary, and they both produced a lot of sound theologians and emphasized the inerrancy and infallibility of God's Word. Coming out of World War II and a great desire to evangelize the world, there was a a desire to get away from some of the negative uh, caricatures of fundamentalism that had developed in the battle against liberalism in the early early 1900s. And so they wanted to soften some of those militant edges and still maintain the same conservative theology emphasizing the fundamentals of the faith. Fundamentals of the faith were that, that uh, Jesus Christ is fully God who entered into human history and became a man, the belief in the uh, substitutionary atonement, belief in miracles, belief in the virgin birth, belief in the physical bodily return of Christ to the earth in the future, and what was the foundation for all of it was a belief in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Scripture as the infallible Word of God. Coming out of World War II, you had the rise of people like Billy Graham, and many of you remember uh, young uh, Billy Graham when he was just a real firebrand and extremely conservative, but he quickly softened as he's got a broader audience. Unfortunately, that's what happens with a lot of people. Another great evangelist of that era was a man named Charles E. Fuller. Fuller founded a seminary in Pasadena, California in 1950 called Fuller Theological Seminary. It had a sound doctrinal statement. They were firmly committed, as he was, to the inerrancy and infallibility of the Word of God. Interestingly enough, in the early 50s, in 1950 and 1953, only 75% of the students entering uh, Fuller Seminary believed in the inerrancy of the Word of God, but when they left, only 40% believed in the inerrancy and infallibility of the Word of God, even though the school allegedly stood for it. By the by, the 1960, early 1960s, they, they, they were getting rid of inerrancy and infallibility of, of the Word. And this was just one of several places in the United States where what had been conservative evangelical groups committed to the infallibility and inerrancy of God's word were having major battles. Uh, Harold Linzel, who was one of the original faculty members at Fuller Seminary, wrote a book about these battles. It came out just prior to my uh, matriculation at Dallas Seminary in 1976 called The Battle for the Bible, and that was required reading in my first semester in a bibliology class with Dr. Ryrie. And so I I, kind of lived through a lot of this period. I read books about what was happening, and a number of the key players that were there were also associated with some other uh, things. I was researching in my doctoral work at Dallas Seminary, and I had uh, long hour, two-hour-long interviews with these men in their offices. And so as I started to read this book that, um, that Tommy had recommended, I was getting excited because certain dots that had not previously connected in my mind were starting to connect 
again and to see that what lies behind the modern church growth movement as such, uh, this whole idea comes out of a lot of really uh, nasty, evil human viewpoint, socialist, world peace, ap- apostasy um, that that was bred in the early part of the 20th century and has just produced an evil fruit today. So we live in, if you think things are bad politically because you hear more about it every day, the political world is in great shape and wonderful health compared to the the so-called conservative evangelical community. It's worse than I could possibly have imagined. So that's my good news message for the coming year. But what we see here is that these kinds of divisions are what happens when you stand for truth. And all of that that I just went through was for the purpose of showing what happens historically when truth is compromised and when you don't stand for truth and you begin to water down the truth of God's word so that the Bible is not the infallible inerrant word of God, it just contains the word of God. Or the Bible is, ju- is better than any other book, but it's not a perfect book. Uh, when you start diluting truth, then you're going to get along with a lot more people, but it's going to lead to destruction. And so Jesus is talking about the fact that he is communicating truth in a world that rejects it, and as a result, peace in terms of harmonious relations among people is going to be lost. In the coming in the next 20 years, what we're going to see is that churches like ours that take a firm stand for the Word of God are going to become fewer in number. They're going to be fewer in number, number one, because for some reason we're no longer, uh, we're no longer producing a generation of pastors to pass the truth onto. They're not there. They're not interested. They're getting married before they go to seminary. They're having children. They're waking up too late to go get the kind of training they ought to have. Uh, I think that's part of God's judgment is when a people don't want the truth, God's not going to give them shepherds who will give them the truth. So we have a, a paucity of pastors that can uh, fearlessly proclaim the truth. Another thing is that we're losing people in the pew. We're losing people in the pew due to age. Uh, we're losing the World War II generation and the generation just after that at incredible numbers. And we see this in our congregation and other congregations as we see people um, age a little bit and they're not able to get out as often. Their eyesight goes. They can't drive at night. Uh, Various other maladies come along and they're not able to be as involved as they once were. So just age is a factor. Another factor is that after you've fought a battle for a long time, it's easier just to fold your hands and go someplace where you're not on the front line so much. And I see that happen. I can't believe the number of older Christians that I know who have left really solid, large churches here in Houston and have gone to uh, churches where I know the truth has been compromised but it's a large church. They can be somewhat anonymous. Uh, less is expected of them, 
and the uh, surroundings are much more attractive and accommodating. And so we've lost people in, in, um, in that way. And I know of some other churches in this city where the pastors seek to dig down into the word and they have people in the congregation say, why do we need to ever hear what the Greek says or the Hebrew says? Why do we need to know this? Um, it's just amazing. We need to know this because this is the word of God and we need to understand it accurately. So Jesus said that he came to set a, a division between father, son, mother, daughter, mother-in-law, daughter-in-law, and even those who are our closest friends will separate from us uh, because of our stand for the truth. Jesus said the same thing a little different way in Luke 12, 51 to 53. He says, do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This is one way that peace is used in Scripture is talking about just the harmonious relationships on a human level uh, within, within a family. Another way in which peace is used in the New Testament is in one of my favorite little verses that the Holy Spirit threw into Acts. He has various uh, ongoing progress reports about the growth of the church in Acts. And in Acts 9.31, he says, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. What you don't see by my just putting that one verse in there is that the previous verse says that the Apostle Paul left town and went back home to Tarsus for a while because he had been causing such a ruckus by his uh, intensity and his desire to debate the truth in Jerusalem with the religious leaders. So after he left, there was peace in Israel, in the churches, and everybody could just relax. What we learn from a study of peace is, first of all, that God alone is the source of peace. He is called many times the God of peace. That is an attribute of his, not in the same sense as sovereignty, righteousness, justice, love, eternal life, but he is the God from whom peace comes. He is not a God who is a God like Satan of chaos and disharmony and evil, but he is the God of peace. As stated in passages like Romans 15.33, Paul says now the God of peace be with you all. And 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Great passage to show that the churches should be orderly organized because God is orderly and organized. It's not a matter of confusion or chaos and people just all coming together and waiting on God the Holy Spirit to move them to say whatever they think God is telling them to say. God is not the author of confusion. Hebrews 13.20 states, Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, he is the God of peace, the source of peace. First Thessalonians 5.23, Paul again ends the letter, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. 
So God alone is the source of peace. Second, peace with God is the opposite of enmity with God in a number of passages. It is especially the passage we're in, which deals with the concept of reconciliation. We, the human race is depicted in Scripture as being in a state of alienation, a state of opposition, a state of, of enmity. We are enemies and hostile to God. And yet God is going to change that status to one of peace. Third thing we learn from just surveying the use of the word peace is that peace, of God, peace with God is used in reference to both a positional peace, as we have in Romans 5.1. We have, present tense, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but peace is also used as part of our experiential sanctification. So we, just as we are justified and just as we have uh, positional righteousness in Christ, but we are also expected to live out in terms of experiential righteousness, so we have peace, but we also have to grow in our uh, peace with God. Every time we sin, we put ourselves back out of fellowship, and there is disharmony in that relationship. So we have passages... Um, such as Second Thessalonians 3.16, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. See, that's a process. It's not something that they already have absolutely and totally. So he is, he is praying that they would continue to grow in peace. First uh, Timothy 2.22, Paul tells the young Timothy, Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness. See, that's experiential righteousness. If you're a believer, you already have positional righteousness, but you have to grow and mature, so this is experiential righteousness. Faith, this is the ongoing faith of our spiritual growth, not faith in Christ at phase one. Uh, Love, this is growing to spiritual maturity and expressing love for one another and love for God. Uh, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So this is an experiential peace in terms of spiritual life and spiritual growth. And, of course, Galatians 5.22 states that as we walk by means of the Spirit, that the part of the fruit of the Spirit is peace, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, uh, patience against which there is no uh, law. Romans 8, 6 makes it very clear in contrasting the believer who walks according to the flesh or is carnally minded versus the believer who walks according to the spirit who is in fellowship and growing spiritually. Paul says, for to be carnally minded, that is to walk by the flesh or the sin nature, to be carnally minded is death, not physical death, not spiritual death, but carnal death. Your spiritual life is ineffective and inoperative because you're out of fellowship. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded, that is to be walking by the Holy Spirit, is life and peace so that we have peace as a quality of our spiritual life and spiritual growth. So the third point is simply that peace with God is used both in terms of positional and experiential sanctification. Fourth, 
Peace is also used to express an inner mental attitude of the believer who rests or trusts or relaxes in God's plan and provision for the believer. It's used in contrast to a mental attitude of fear or worry or anxiety or a troubled state of mind. I thought that was so interesting when I was reading through the gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus in Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2, how many people were troubled. Joseph, get, I mean, if an angel appeared to you, I guess you'd be troubled too. I'd be troubled too. That would uh, uh, cause a little worry. It's like being sent to the principal's office, except the principal just suddenly shows up in front of you. And you immediately wonder why in the world this is going on. Joseph is troubled. Mary's troubled. Uh, Herod's troubled. All the people become troubled because Herod was troubled. Everybody's troubled, but because the Prince of Peace is coming to end all the trouble. So Jesus uses it this way in John fourteen twenty seven, Peace, I leave with you. Remember, John 14 is the upper room, part of the upper room discourse, although they've... Um, uh, they're getting just getting ready to leave the upper room. Not all of the upper room discourse is in the upper room. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. So the peace that we have is his peace. It's not something that we uh, gin up within ourselves through some sort of uh, mental attitude dynamics course or through some sort of motivational training. Uh, we don't go on some uh, late-night TV show to watch some motivator uh, tell us what we need to do in order to have uh, more focus and stability in our lives. It has to do with our spiritual walk. It's a product of God the Holy Spirit. It is the peace that Jesus has, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid." Now, that last phrase is important because at the beginning of the chapter, uh, Jesus is responding to Peter's question, Lord, where are you going? And the Lord begins the chapter by telling them, let not your heart be troubled. For where I go, you may go also. So we are to be able to relax and not worry, even in the most chaotic circumstances when we just don't know how things are going to turn out. And we may uh, may not make it through those circumstances. Often I have said, others have said, that God is going to do one of three things whenever we encounter adversity. He's either going to save us from it, so we avoid it altogether. He's going to save us through it, or he's going to save us out of it. He's going to uh, take us home. Trouble with option two and option three is we don't know how long that lasts before we're actually absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. And what we worry about is the pain, the suffering, the adversity and tribulation that may last 15, 20, 30 years before we finally get pulled out. Um, But we're to trust God. We're not to be in a state of anxiety or worry living one day at a time. That is... um, what the Lord says. We have his peace, so we need to learn to focus on the fact that God has given us his peace. That's a promise we can claim, and we can relax, not give thought to tomorrow, not in the sense that we don't plan. Uh, There's a sense there in worry in which we do worry uh, in a legitimate way about tomorrow. 
We think about what I'm going to do tomorrow. If I have a presentation at work tomorrow, if I have to do certain things tomorrow, I have to be prepared for those things. And we often think about them. We wrestle with them in our mind. It's all part of concentration. It's all part of pulling things together so we do a good job. That's not the kind of worry Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about uh, the kind of worry that keeps us awake at night because we're trying to uh, keep control or maintain control or grab control of elements or people in our lives because they're out of control. And we think that if we can just somehow control it, life will be okay. We can't do it. We have to rest in God. Then we have uh, John sixteen thirty three. These things I've spoken to me, uh, spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. We will always have adversity. We can count on it. But because we are in Christ, we have peace, even in the midst of the most incredible, incredibly difficult circumstances. He says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In First John, because he's overcome the world, we can overcome the world. And then um, fifth point, peace is used to describe the positional change from enmity to amity, from hostility to friendship, between man and God based on the payment of the sin penalty. So that peace was, the message of peace was often used as a summation of, or a synonym for preaching the gospel. Acts 10.36, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Why? Because he is the Messiah who will come and bring peace in all of its dimensions. Romans 5.1, the passage we're looking at, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then I put together this little diagram to try to show some of the different components of peace. Uh, just up in the upper left circle, Peace is used to describe the absence of physical conflict. This may be physical conflict between two people. It may be physical conflict between uh, two nations, but it is uh, absence of physical conflict. On the opposite side, we have the absence of mental conflict, where you are in worry, a state of worry and high anxiety and fear about circumstances. What's going to happen? What will take place? How am I going to take care of myself? How am I going to handle the future? How will I face tomorrow? Tomorrow will take care of itself. On the second line, it's used in in reference to the absence of conflict between Jew and Gentile. Jew and Gentile were not at peace with one another in terms of the Mosaic law In the Old Testament, there was a wall of separation between them. That's in Ephesians 2, 11 and following. It's also used in the right side to refer to the absence of personal conflict, the absence of personal conflict. That's how Jesus is using it in the passages where he says, I didn't come to give peace. That is, I didn't come to bring an absence of personal conflict. So that's different from how they... Peace is used in terms of his title, the Prince of Peace. But what lays at the foundation is the absence of spiritual conflict. 
enmity and hostility being the state between God and man. Jesus has come to solve that, that problem at the cross. And because that problem is solved at the cross, which relates to reconciliation, then these other circumstantial types of, of uh, conflict can then be eradicated because those are related to sin. And once the major problem is resolved at the cross, then these other problems can be resolved. But the, there will never be an absence of physical conflict or emotional conflict or conf- the conflict between Jew and Gentile, which was resolved at the cross, or personal conflict until the sin problems dealt with. Now, that doesn't end it for us. That gives us a basis while we're still living in our fallen bodies and living in the, in the devil's world to deal with it. But when Jesus returns at, to establish his kingdom, then there will be world peace. Then there will be an absence of conflict. Now, those who are mortal living on the earth are going to still have some problems because they still have sin natures. And that's why there will be a worldwide war at the end of the millennial kingdom which will be where the where when Satan is released uh, from his prison for uh, at the end of the thousand years, he will lead a rebellion against God, and all those who follow him will be destroyed instantly by, by God. So that gives us a little overview of peace. Back to Romans 5.1. So we have a conclusion. Paul's going to develop the implications of being justified. He says, because we have been declared righteous... By faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned earlier in the introduction that there is some debate over how to understand that phrase, we have peace. Uh, the Greek word, literal word in the text, is akamen. And the last, uh, the last the, that, that ending is either an omicron men, or an omega men. And in the first century, as far as we can tell, this is probably one reason that you have a textual problem like this developed if one person was speaking and the scribes are writing it down, is that the distinction between a short O for omicron, you, you can hear it, ah, versus the long O in omega had disappeared so that the omega and the omicron were pronounced virtually the same uh, in Greek by the first century A.D., so it would be easy to mistake uh, that word, hearing it. Ekamen with the omicron is a present active indicative. With the omega, is it is a subjunctive. Uh, indicative is a statement of reality. We have faith. Omen with the omega would represent a, a an encouragement or a statement such as let us... Uh, maintain peace with God in the sense of staying in fellowship or growing in our spiritual life. Let us exploit the peace that we have from justification. There are a lot of, uh, a lot of different manuscripts uh, with, with uh, support either reading. It's not just a clear-cut case. In fact, reading a number of, of uh, scholars, they'll all point out that in terms of the external evidence, which is what they mean by the uh, the, the documents and all the manuscripts that we have, and we're talking about thousands of manuscripts that we have, that the, the, the um, 
the external evidence is really weighted in the favor of the subjunctive. But the internal evidence goes against that. And the internal evidence has to do with the flow of the argument and what the apostle is talking about and things like that. And even scholars who generally do not go along with the majority text reading go along with it in this case, which is the reading that we have. We have peace with God. I think that is the superior uh, superior reading. It's not let us enjoy peace or let us maintain peace, but it is. I think it's pretty clear it must be taken as the indicative we uh, have peace with God. And, because, and that peace is through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is talking about a consequence of being uh, declared righteous. And then he says in verse 2, through whom, that is through Christ, Again, he says, uh, whom also we have access by means of faith or from faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, I want you to look at something in your Bible. If you look at verse verse 2, he uses uh, a couple of key words that are there. Uh, actually, three we, in, in the English, I'm just going to focus on two because they're different in the Greek. Rejoice and hope. Rejoice and hope. When we look at verse 3, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that uh, tribulation or adversity produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. So connect the hope in verse 2 to the hope at the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. Uh, because hope is a key idea that, that goes through this particular section. Then we have the mention of joy and rejoicing in there in verse 2, rejoice in hope. And in verse 11, which is the end of this, section, this little section from 1 to 11, Paul says not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through now we have received the reconciliation. So reconciliation is brought in, that terminology, which is only really used in a couple of passages in the New Testament uh, here and in 2 Corinthians 5, that joy and hope, I mean, joy and hope are brought together, peace and reconciliation are the other key words, and love as mentioned uh, several times as well, uh, especially in verse 5 and verse 8. And both in, uh, in verse uh, 8 and later in verse 10, we have the emphasis on us being enemies of God. So this is a major passage on understanding how just the relationship of justification to reconciliation. So it is through Jesus also we have access by faith, and this word access is an interesting Greek noun, prosagoge, P-R, I didn't transliterate that, it's P-R-O-S-A-G-O-G-E, P-R-O-S-A-G-O-G-E, prosagoge, which means approach, access, or admission. It reminds us of Hebrews 4, which speaks to the fact that we have we can now come boldly before the throne of grace because of the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is through him that we have access, and it is by faith. 
We have access by faith into this grace, and this grace is used as sort of a um, a wordplay for the whole gospel, everything related to the gospel. It's based on grace, so it stands for everything. So through whom also we have access by faith into this grace, everything we freely receive from God, in which we stand. It's a perfect tense verb there for stand, meaning a comp- action completed in the past that continues we even out of fellowship we're positionally in christ we always stand in grace positionally now this connects us over to ephesians 2 and understanding this whole concept of peace and i want to stop there because ephesians 2 is gets a little difficult we don't have a lot of time left and i want to make sure we get we have enough time to work our way through ephesians 2 uh, because it looks at one level like it's talking about reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, but that reconciliation between Jew and Gentile is ultimately based on reconciliation with God. And because reconciliation with God was accomplished on the cross, Paul is arguing in Ephesians 2, then there, the barrier between Jew and Gentile, which was the law, has been removed. And so now in Christ, there's one body. Jew and Gentile is not an issue spiritually in the church age. So we'll come back to examine that next time. And then in really in Romans, the last part of Romans 5.2 on down, it begins to indicate this, the relationship and the impact of reconciliation on our spiritual life and the process of spiritual growth. So we will look at that, though, in about three or four weeks when I get back from Kiev. Appreciate your prayers while I'm in Kiev, and I'm still having some back problems, so I'm concerned about that, so I appreciate your prayers on that. But it should looking forward to a good, uh, uh, a good trip and a good time uh, in Kiev this year. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for all the ways in which you have uh, provided for us, all the ways you have taken care of this congregation over the past 12 months, and the way you have done so over the past seven years And, Father, we just continue to look to you to provide for our every need, to supply uh, everything that is necessary uh, for us, to sustain us. We live in a world that has rejected truth. And as each year goes by, it becomes more challenging to take a stand for truth, and we realize more and more how we are uh, uh, opposed to the world system around us and how... Uh, challenging it is uh, to be able to live in the midst of people who think that that we believe some really strange things. But yet, Father, we know we're in the devil's world and we can expect nothing uh, else, and we should not be surprised when the devil's world acts like the, like the devil's world. So, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us, encourage us, that we might not become discouraged by looking at a world that is working out its its own beliefs, but that we might be encouraged by your grace and the way you sustain us, and that we might always focus on the hope, the confident expectation that we have in Jesus Christ, that no matter what we face, no matter how difficult or uncertain the circumstances, that we know that you are in control and that we can relax and trust in you, and that because we have peace with you based on justification, We can have inner peace and happiness and stability because we are relaxed in letting you control our lives. 
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.